then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even salt has become, but if even the salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has an ears, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before your throne of love, mercy, and grace. We just ask that you be with us as we dig deep into your word, that much fruit will be, will be bared from this study. Um, we just ask that your name will be highly exalted and that your truth would be conveyed clearly, Father. Let all things glorify you today, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it has been said that our journey in walking with the Lord is, is at times one of the most difficult walks that we may ever have to do. Now, I know it's a spiritual walk, but nevertheless, I think you can testify of this. At times, it could be extremely difficult. Uh, we're not promised a happy life uh, in accordance to what the world considers happiness. Uh, an example of this, we see this from the Apostle Paul, where he faced much affliction just about everywhere he went. And so that certainly was the case for him. We actually, if we're promised anything, we are promised persecution because of the one who we are following. This is a hard sell for those who come through the doors of the church and hear the gospel message. The cost of following Christ and promised persecution is a hard sell for an unbeliever. And even those who have professed Christ and even at times linger around the faith by having committed their full life and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a life of a constant self-denial. Uh, this is considered to be the battle that we fight on a daily basis. This is a, uh, the battle of the flesh and the spirit, and we know that that is always raging on within us. Uh, Christianity, Christianity is often mocked by, by the world. We are seen as foolish individuals. Uh, we face opposition at just about every single corner uh, because of our faith, wherever we go. So why do we do it? Why do we continue on this journey with Christ? Why? Simple. It's because he's worthy of all of it. He is worthy of all of it and much, much more. For the true follower of Christ, we understand that this world is not our home. As servants of Christ, we are not greater than the master. We bear these things because our minds and our souls have been reconciled and no longer are, are we fixated on the things of this fading world. Those things are no longer attracted or attracting to us. Much more, we are fixated on Christ and the things that are eternal. This world is passing away. We understand that. We understand that our time here is like a blinking of an eye compared to eternity with our Creator. We, having, we have counted all things lost, and our citizenship is not of this world. We are now, by the mercy of Christ, simply passing by until we reach our glorious destination either when he we just sung this until he comes back or he calls his home right those are the things in which we are fixated upon and so if you take a look at our main text today that's that's what we're going to be this is the cost of following christ out of luke 14. now in verses 25 through 27 i have laid out if you're taking notes uh, 25 through 27 will be considered the condition 28 through 32 is the clarification. 
and 33 through 35 is the condemnation. You know, and, and we immediately go to verse 25, and it says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, and then he goes on, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And this was a, a pretty constant theme for our Lord Jesus Christ. It looked like wherever he went, there was always large crowds. Uh, another way to interpret this uh, large crowds is a multitude of large crowds consistently following the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he went. And a large crowds uh, are, are something that the westernized church really salivate for. Right? They really just care about the large, large crowds. Uh, it, it's, it's extremely appealing for them. Um, but the, the Lord Jesus Christ was never concerned about the size of the crowd. He always cared about one thing. He, con, he was concerned mainly of the heart of the follower within the crowd. And we see an example of this. If you, turn with, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. We see another example of this. John 6, 48 Through 68. This is going to be a pretty lengthy passage, but I feel it's important for us to go over it. Here's yet another scenario where there is a large crowd after the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the context of this, he, he just finished saying that he is the bread of life. And of course, the Jewish people were grumbling about him. And, you know, he's, he's over here saying that he is the bread that came down out of heaven. And the Jewish people are having a hard time with this saying, this teaching from the Lord. And we pick this up in John 6, 48. And he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscience that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted, granted to him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 
So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also? Do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And it's a, it's a powerful passage. It looks like as these large crowds are consistently following the Lord Jesus Christ, he was never concerned with how, how large these crowds were. As a matter of fact, every time he had a large crowd, it would seem that he would put up these barriers every single time. Why? So we can identify who the true follower of Christ really is. You know, and we see that, that many will profess Christ. Many will profess Christ, and when things start to get a little tough, uh, they will withdraw as well. We see this in verse 66. Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They were his disciples. They were professing, they were professing their faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I mean, look at this passage, and, and it's good for us to self-analyze where we are and who we are in this passage. Uh, 67, actually, yeah, 67 says, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And those are the characteristics of a true follower of Christ. It is a complete submission to the word of God. And even at times when we get alone with the scriptures and we come across something that is perhaps very difficult in our walk, this is how we ought to react. At times, this may be a difficult, but where else are we going to go? Right? These are the words of eternal life. That is the distinction of those who profess Christ and don't have faith and those who actually profess Christ and are true followers of him. And so the American church, in a, in a way, has a, appeared to appease to the large crowds. Instead of determining who the real followers of Christ are, the way we do that is by simply proclaiming the one true gospel. The gospel message is intended to offend people. It is intended to do that. And if one is offended and they repent and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your true follower of the Lord. Now, understanding the gospel includes a self-denial, cross-bearing, counting the cost, surrendering to Christ. You know, he's not only our Savior, he is Lord, right? We submit to all the things that he has commanded us to do. If he is only Savior but not Lord, then he's no Savior to you at all. He must be Savior and He must be Lord as well. These things, unfortunately, are, are, are foreign to the church today. Uh, Steve Lawson says this, Following Jesus is a journey that comes at a high price. This is not a relationship to be entered into lightly. This decision requires the commitment of our entire life to Jesus Christ. Coming to Christ takes priority over all other pursuits in life, it necessitates the submission of our wills to him as we surrender to his lordship. This path requires our sacrifice and, at times, even our suffering for him. To be sure, Jesus will not follow us. We are called to follow him. We are called to follow him. So turn back with me in our main text. As we take a look at 26 and 27, this is what... I have outlined as the condition. It says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. These are very, very tough words. They're tough words. And the Lord Jesus, he never sugarcoated anything. 
Some, some of these words are still harsh for even in today's world. But such words are intended to awaken the spiritually dead and even capture the attention of those who are lethargic. That was the whole point of his ministry. But we cannot miss this either. These are difficult words, but this is also what we call a hyperbole. This is a hyperbole. A hyperbole is an exaggerated statement to make a specific point. This is what we see here, a hyperbole. For example, the Lord Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out, right? Does he literally mean that or is that a hyperbole? That is also a hyperbole. This is what we deal with here in the text in Luke 14. Now, another phrase here is his own. This phrase is actually used in this text, speaks to the, to the natural priority and normal affection for one's own family. So Lord Jesus Christ saying those, those things that are deeply, that you deeply care for and love so dearly, I must be above that. He must be priority over all these things. Naturally, another word that your eye should gravitate to here in this text is the word hate, right? Naturally, it will go to the word hate. Why would that be there? Does this not contradict other passages in Scripture that command us to, for example, in Exodus 20, uh, verse 12, to honor our parents? What about in Ephesians 5, 25, where we're commanded for husbands to love your wives, or wives love your husbands in Titus 2, 4, or parents love your children, Ephesians 6, 4? No, it does not contradict any of that. Let me give you a couple of examples when it comes to this word hate. One example that comes to mind is in Romans 9.13, we see Jacob I loved, but Esau I what? I hated. The explanation of this, did, did God truly hate Esau? Depends on the text. But what it truly means is that God preferred Jacob and his promise was going to go through the lineage of Jacob. That's what it means. Another one is in Genesis 29.31 where it tells us that Leah was unloved by Jacob. The Hebrew translation here is literally hate. Does this mean that Jacob despised and hated and had some kind of animosity against Leah? Not at all. As a matter of fact, what it means is he, he rather, his love was rather for somebody else. Who was that? It was Rachel, right? It was a matter of preference. And that's how we see this in this text. How do we translate it here? In the same way, because the Lord ought to be first place in our priority above all things, all other things in comparison to Christ are to be looked at as a lesser love. A lesser love. And we understand passages that tell us to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we can see the gap between all the things that, that are on this side that we have an affection for and the love that we ought to have for Christ. There needs to be a gap there. There needs to be a separation. The Lord Jesus Christ needs to be number one and priority in our lives. Now, another thing that he's saying in the text here is we can't escape the fact that this gospel is going to bring tension even within the, own, within the family home. Uh, turn with me to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. We get a little bit of a glimpse of this. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. God's word reads, Do not 
do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be, the, will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Will find it. Now, coming to Christ means a complete forsaking of everything that we've ever once loved. It's to let all those things go. Why? Because Christ is much, much better. Much better than all those things. After all, he is the one who is able to save our souls. And so there has to be this gap between our affections, even within our own family, and the things that we like in this world, but the love that we have for Christ much, 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 has to supersede all other things. It has to. Turn with me to Luke. Luke 17. We get another angle at this as well. Luke 17, verse 32. 32 and 33, the Lord says, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, that is a very interesting passage, right? Remember Lot's wife. If you guys remember correctly, there's something that happens to Lot's wife. And sometimes we might read right over this, but let's turn to the beginning. Let's turn to Genesis and take a look at this account. Genesis 19. Genesis 19, 15 through 26, we see what happens to Lot's wife. Again, that would be Genesis 19, 15 through 26. This is obviously the account of, of judgment finally coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And now there's a rescue mission for Lot and his family and his wife. And it's to get them out as quickly as possible. And we pick this up in verse 15. And it says, When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, uh, who are here, are you, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, now behold your servants has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it too small that my life may be saved? And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request. Also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, 
for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all, uh, and all the valley and, and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That quickly, she became a pillar of salt. I think the obvious question is, why would she turn back? Why? I think the obvious answer is that there was still an attachment in her heart, and there was an attachment to the city, and she could not let go of that. Friend, we, may, we must not look back either. We cannot look back. You know, for, for Lot's wife, there was some kind of attachment to Sodom. Uh, turns back to look uh, because, you know, that's where her heart really was. In the midst of her life being preserved, she couldn't help but to look back at her previous life. You know, failing to cling to the Lord who was in the process of preserving her own life. And that wasn't enough. For her, she had to look back once more. Again, friend, we cannot, cannot look back. The life that we once had is nothing in comparison to our new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have everything we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this, Paul writes this in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Yeah, turn with me there. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. And Paul writes this. Paul, obviously, we, we get a little bit of this background. Actually, in, uh, in verse 2, we'll start in verse 2. That way we get a glimpse of his previous life and his new life. And Paul writes in verse 2 in chapter 3 of Philippians, it says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But now we turn the corner in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's exactly how Paul viewed all the other things that he accomplished as a Pharisee. Here, he counts all those things as lost. He says, I count them but rubbish. Greek word there is skubala, which comes manure. I count all those things 
they're basically manure when it comes in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's how he viewed it. Now, this type of sacrificial life of, of, of true counting the cost and committing your life to the Lord is a sacrificial life, and evidently it will bring forth persecution. It will bring forth persecution. This is why the Lord states, whoever does not carry his own cross cannot come can, and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross here is, is signifying death. In a sense, it's saying, are you willing to even die for the Lord? Willing to die for Christ is understanding the preciousness of salvation. One of the statements I don't like very much is when, especially from the unbelievers, is when they say, this is my cross to bear. It's not. Cross here, according to the scripture, means death. It means death. It means even a willingness to die for the Lord. If we're willing to do that, then we have the right view of salvation. It has to be the most precious thing for us. Because the Lord bought it for us at a price with his blood. And this thing, this, this picking up the cross must be done daily. And we see this, we're going to have to turn there in Luke 9, 23 to 26. This is a daily sacrifice. This is taking up your cross daily, as Luke 9, 23 to 26 says. Now going back to our main text in Luke 14, there's two words here I, I really don't want us to miss. It's in verse 26. He says, if anyone. And in verse 27, he says, whoever. Anyone and whoever. This invitation is actually extended to everyone. It was a message for all to hear. No matter how hard the message, the message, the invitation is for everyone. It is for everyone. This is a call to exchange your heavy load of sin and place it upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross so that you may take up his yoke, which is light and full of grace. That is the call. The Lord is the one who issues the call, and therefore, He is the one who sets the terms. You don't, make, you don't get to make your own conditions when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get to cut your own deal with Christ. There is no negotiating. There's no give or take. The terms are to be accepted or refused and never altered to fit your own personal needs. He is the one who calls, and so therefore, He is the one who sets the terms. If you go back just a few chapters to Luke 9, Luke 9, 57 through 62, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he, said to an, and he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but... First, permit me to say goodbye to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I find this very interesting because a lot of people say that they will follow Christ everywhere. 
And that's usually not the case when things get tough, right? I find it interesting here in uh, this first, in 59, verse 59, and he said to one, follow me, but he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. This is a phrase that actually must be interpreted within the culture and what's going on at that time is the phrase is more like, I must bury my father. What's interesting about this is that his father is not even dead. He's not. In a sense, what he is saying is, let me get my inheritance first, and then I will catch up and I will follow you. That's not what the Lord is seeking for. He wants a permanent decision. A Christian cannot go on second-guessing whether they made the right decision to follow Christ or not. We have to count the cost. We can't be one foot in the church and another foot in the world. Um, that is what James 1 calls an unstable man. Back to our main text to get clarification. Luke 14, 28 through 32, we see the clarification in our, in our outline. It says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether, whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So what does this look like? This looks in regards to a builder who unfortunately did not count the cost before building the tower, and then he, the Lord Jesus also gives an example of a king gearing up to go to battle. Well, one of them is extremely foolish because he didn't count the cost of anything. He decided, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and build, and midway through, he doesn't have enough material. That is a foolish thing to do. But yet, we see a king who, in a sense, is wise. He's saying, okay, I got 10,000 men with me. He's, he's surveyed the land, uh, all his goods, the people. And yet understands that he will lose because he's going up against a king who has 20,000 men and he doesn't stand a chance. That is somebody who has sat down and counted the cost and he has to. There's many people under him that will suffer the consequences of that. So we see the foolishness of the builder and the logic of the king. We cannot be half-hearted when it comes to Christ. You cannot have, again, one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It's a full-blown surrender commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, someone just asked me even today, you know, what does a, a life that is completely surrendered look like? Well, you have a love for the Lord, you have a love for His Word, you have a love for God's people, and you love to serve. Right? Those, are, that is, those are the characteristics and the attributes of a Christian who has truly surrendered all things, has counted the cost, and has followed Christ. But again, we can't be back and forth. Uh, James, if you turn with me to the book of James, we see that Scripture tells us that this such person who is second-guessing whether they made the right move or not, in reality, this is a double-minded man. James 1, 6-7. through 7. Let's start in verse 2. That way we get the entire context of this. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, 
When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let the endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like, a, is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. There is a category here of those who maybe believe that they don't have enough faith. And so he's telling them, just ask and it will be given to you as far as the wisdom. But he's very, he's pointing out a specific group of, of people who is double-minded, tossed to and fro, and expect that man to receive nothing from the Lord. Why is this an unbeliever? Well, we see that in chapter 4 in the very same book, James 4, 8 through 10. It says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. What is the entire theme of the book of James? The entire theme is, is he's actually directing this particular letter to those who are professing Christ and yet have no fruit. Right? He's, in a sense, that's no Christian at all. No Christian at all. Right? If you profess Christ with your lips and do not have fruit to back it up, it's time to self-examine our, our own hearts. And this is the context within this book. Now, I wanted to read something to you out of uh, basic Christ Christianity. I thought it was convicting for this. And it reads, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict. Half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish, for thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved Enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. The religion is, is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Those who profess Christ with their lips and yet have no fruit and have not counted the cost you're just giving Christianity a bad name. That's exactly what's going on. In Matthew 19, we do see someone who actually counted the cost to his own demise in Matthew 19, 16 through 26. I'm sure we are all extremely familiar with this encounter of the, the rich young ruler. It says, and someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, 
You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than, the, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who, can sa- can, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That meaning, salvation is not something that man can do on his own. Salvation is only a gift of God. He is the one who does the saving. But in verse 16, it says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall, we, shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Oh, that is the ultimate question in the American church now, right? I mean, if they were to get this, they, you should pray this prayer, right? Pray this prayer or walk down this aisle and you will have eternal life. That is not the case. And, and really, that's not the way the Lord Jesus Christ did that at all. As a matter of fact, he places the law before him so that he may be crushed under it for him to come to the realization he can't keep these things at all but one thing that we can say about the rich young ruler is that at, that he at least counted the cost and for him his riches was far more important to him than the glories of the lord jesus christ who was in right in front of him you know we have to count the cost with the Olympics going on now, uh, many of these athletes have counted the cost. They've trained for many years for moments like this. They have sacrificed a lot. They have counted the cost for a medal. But, you know, in 1 Corinthians 9.25, you know, they do it for something that is perishable. We do it for an imperishable crown, right? We see that in 1 Corinthians 9.25. How much more important is it to count the cost of those things that are eternal? We must be focused on those things that have eternal value. Let's go back to the main text in Luke 14. As we see the comparison of of two kings, one who does not have enough resources and the other one who has plenty, it is truly a battle of two kings, one who is lesser and the other who is far, far greater. It actually requires a complete surrender to the other king. And in a sense, if you haven't given your life to the Lord, confessed him as your Lord and Savior, you have been the king of your own life. And now you're confronted with the true king of kings and lord of lords. Now the true ultimate question is, are you willing to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we? Verses 33 and 35, we see the condemnation. Luke 14, 33 through 35 says, So then none of you can be my disciple, who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless. Either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those who are unwilling to lose their lives and gain it, 
in Christ will, in a sense, stand condemned. And there is no other option but the waiting judgment and wrath of God. And we see that in the phrase, they will be thrown out. They will be thrown out. That is judgment. That is a judgment language. And we also see the salt is good. The Lord has used this many times. The analogy here is tied really to the usefulness of salt in the world. We see that in Matthew 5.13, in Mark 9.50, and we are the salt of the world, right? We're not just the light of the world, we're also the salt of the world. But what's salt good for? Well, it's good for taste, right? But there's another thing that it's good for. It's good for, it's actually used for a preservative. Now, just follow me with, follow me on this. Being a follower of Christ means that you have two things continually working in your life. One is the Word of God. Two is the Spirit of God. Those things in a true Christian are always working in their lives. These two are vital for the Christian life and enables the believer to act as a preservative in society. In a sense, the believer is extremely useful. This is a Christian that is useful to the kingdom of God. The church, by the power of the Spirit, working in the true believer, acts as a restraint, a preservative, against the evil that is always being produced by this world. That is a sign of a true, useful Christian. You know, the person who has made a profession of faith and even pledged an allegiance to Christ but fails to be useful in, a sense, in this sense is utterly useless. The Lord's illustration of the salt losing its taste and becoming tasteless, in a sense what he is saying is he doesn't want temporary disciples. And that's what we read early on in the text in John 6, right? Many of his disciples withdrew. They withdrew. They could not take the words, the commandments of the Lord. And the Lord doesn't want that. He doesn't want temporary disciples. So I guess the proper question should be, is, is such a person even, does, do they even know the Lord? Right? If you're, if you're professing Christ all day, but yet your life is completely different than that according to Scripture, we must self-analyze who we are in Christ. This is a harsh rebuke. And in closing, I want to go to the book of Revelation because this rebuke sounds extremely similar to Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, we see that seven letters go out to seven churches and then we get to Revelation 3, 14 through 19. And this is in regards to the church in Laodicea. And what are they labeled as? Lukewarm. Lukewarm. 14 through 19. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe, you may be clothed, you may clothe yourself and that the same of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I solve 
to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And repent. This is a lukewarm church. Lukewarm. Neither hot to be soothing or cold to be refreshing. They're utterly useless. Utterly useless. You know, these parts of Scripture speak to those who maybe perhaps have made a confession of faith but not have the fruit to back it up. Uh, this is because maybe they have not counted all things lost in accordance to following Christ. I want to leave you with, with this in, uh, in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 26. Through 31. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written during a time of persecution by Nero. Um, what's going on here is actually there are different sets of people, ones who have truly surrendered their life to the Lord and are following him regardless of the persecution that is being thrown their way. And specifically, the other group of people are those who cannot make a decision for Christ. Because what they're doing is they see Judaism on this side who is not facing persecution and they want to go back. And they're willing to not make a full-blown commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews is saying, there's nothing to go back to. Right? These are people who have, in a sense, come through the, the, the doors of the church and are just lingering around in the faith. Undecisive, double-minded, not sure if they have made a full commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and are back and forth. And so now this brings us to Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. God's word says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? He says, if we go on willfully sinning, meaning you walk through the doors of the church, you come and hear the glorious gospel that is able to save your soul, and you turn around and go out, there's nothing else out there more glorious than the, than the gospel, and there is nothing that's going to atone for your sins at all whatsoever. You've turned away from the most glorious thing. There's nothing else left. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing. Now, have we counted the cost? I pray that we have counted the cost so that the Lord may sustain us. I don't want to get the message mixed up. We bring nothing to salvation, right? God is sovereign over all things. He is the one who calls us onto salvation. But along with God's sovereignty, there's always man's responsibility to respond to the gospel. That responsibility is, is extremely personal and will lay solely at the feet of the person who has been presented with the gospel. 
So with that said, let's go ahead and, and go to the Lord in prayer, and then Brother Jason will come right back up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth that is in it. We just ask that you bear much